God in heaven, I just want to thank you for being amazing. Your grace does amaze us, and I'm asking now, as we reflect upon Scripture this morning in the Incarnation, I pray that you would do something in this space, in this very moment, that none of us would soon forget. I pray as Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33 that you would show us your glory and God that you would draw us even closer to yourself. Minister to the hurting hearts that are in this congregation and bless us now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As Luke did mention, uh, I do have the privilege of helping to run a school for the Pennsylvania Conference called CORE. Um, Our website, our new website should be live in like the next 72 hours or so. It's coreevangelism.com. If you'd like to find out more information or just come talk to me afterwards, I got postcards. We're actually giving away our Three Angels Messages class for free. Uh, So you can walk through the Three Angels Messages content uh, for free, and that's going to be available very soon as well. So we're excited for that. And Core Online will be coming by Thanksgiving this year, by God's grace. So if you can't come to Pennsylvania, you can still receive all the training, uh, all of the lectures and so forth by Thanksgiving this year, thankfully. But uh, again, today we're going to be discussing something that I think is very relevant to this time of year, addressing the topic of the Incarnation. Uh, yes, it's true, Jesus was not born on December 25. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry to crush your, your hopes and stuff. But he was not born December 25. He was born in the autumn. Uh, but this time of year does give us a space to talk about the significance of that event more than any other time. And, but what I hope we will realize today is that this is something we should be dwelling upon regularly. Uh, not just on December 25th and the week before and the week after. Um, we, we really need to immerse ourselves in this topic because I think there's a lot of keys to a lot of the grief and heartbreak and challenges that this world is dealing with right now in this topic. So in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we have a perfect people in perfect communion with a perfect God in a perfect environment. It's all good. It's an amazing experience. Face-to-face communion with God himself, guys. Can you imagine? Face-to-face communion with God himself. And the difficulty is, in, there's this uh, you know, kind of bad circumstance that happens in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve fall. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 that sin causes separation from God. And this had to have been devastating for our first parents. I can't even imagine the grief they went through um, in recognizing the consequences of their decision and what was lost through this process. But there's this interesting scenario in Genesis chapter 3 where when this separation occurs, God comes in and investigates and he asks them, where are you? Now, can you hide from God behind a bush, yes or no? No, you can't hide from God behind a bush. And we get evidence here that sin doesn't just separate us from God, right? There's marital strife that begins immediately. He's blaming her. She's blaming the serpent, right? It causes separation amongst ourselves. But it even causes separation, you know, from like logic and stuff. Sin makes us kind of dumb. Anyone else want to testify to that? Yeah, sin can make us kind of dumb at times. It makes us do things we wish we didn't do. And, but what comes along with this is shame, Right? This idea that I'm nothing but the mistakes that I have made. And this can be absolutely crippling for many people. And they realize that they were naked, and so they cover themselves with fig leaves. And I'm sure none of us have ever done that, right? We never found ways to kind of cover ourselves up to look a little bit better because we don't want people to see us naked and ashamed. We don't want, we're not about that life, right? So the problem is, if all of us are wearing fig leaves, 
then because, you know, I don't want anyone to see me and I don't want you to see me because, you know, I got my stuff and I don't want you to see my stuff. I want you to think that I'm together. Then that makes us feel even more alone, right? If we're all living this lie in our fig leaves of piety and claiming to be something we aren't, then nobody feels safe. No one feels connected and it makes matters even worse, right? Shame can distort our thinking and get us into the circumstance. But God preaches the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and tells, he curses the serpent and says that the seed that comes through Eve, through human means, is going to crush you, but you will bruise his heel in the process, right? That he's going to suffer as he conquers Satan. This is the first gospel sermon that is ever preached on planet earth. So we go from face-to-face communion to now separation. We lost that fellowship that we once had. There's still the blessing of communing with God on the Sabbath in ways we can't any other time, but it's a challenging and difficult season for our parents. But this goes on for some years, and then God makes a statement in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 that I'm so thankful for. He says, and I want you to pay attention to the language that's used here. In fact, turn there because I want you to help me out. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. You may be able to recite it from memory. Praise the Lord if you can. And it's quite all right if you can't. But turn to Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. God tells Moses, the separation has gone on for years now. God tells Moses, let them build me a sanctuary why? And I need some verbal feedback. I'm tired of preaching to computer screens. There's real people here. Prove it. Say something, y'all. That I may dwell among them. Okay? That word dwell is very important in our study today. Okay? I want to dwell among them. And the very idea, the very fact that God says he wants to dwell among us seems to me that he's trying to get rid of the separation. Are you noticing that? Right? He doesn't want the separation. He's trying to deal with that. I'm moving next door. So the very fact that God is choosing to relocate himself of sorts, to live next door to selfish, judgmental, and depraved people like me, implies that he's not done with me. Amen? Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've fallen. Yes, we've caused problems. But God isn't done with us. That Even if I've made a mess of my life, he must see something of value in me. Else he wouldn't be moving next door. And so for all intents and purposes, God becomes the neighbor of his people. And if you're familiar with the the, kind of the layout of how this worked, in Exodus and in the Hebrew sanctuary service and in the kind of the layout of the community, the tabernacle was in the middle of the community. If you've ever been to like old towns where they have like the city square, you know, the roundabouts, and they got the clock tower in the middle or the courthouse, it was very much like this. This was the life of the whole community. You had tents on the north, the south, the east, and the west, but God's presence was dwelling right there in the middle. And the purpose of this sanctuary and the service of the sanctuary was to alleviate the problem of separation to communicate that there's a Messiah who's coming to this world who's going to suffer, who's going to die and put an end to that separation. It's reminding us of the first gospel sermon preached in Eden that introduces this idea of the incarnation, God becoming a man and suffering and dying for the sins of humanity. And go with me to 1 Kings chapter 6, because God uses very similar language as he gives the instructions for the Solomonic temple. Go to 1 Kings chapter 6. The temple that Solomon built, 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. 1 Kings 6, beginning in verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, 
keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And then what does God promise to do? He will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Right? God's desire to dwell with his people is continuing. He's making that clear. The whole point of this tabernacle, of this service, is to communicate my intention to get rid of the separation between us so that I can dwell with you once again. Okay? God is communicating this through the sanctuary service. So I'm not okay with this separation. I'm moving next door. I miss you. But I love the fact that God doesn't stop here. Right? God is not content to be the neighbor of his people. Right? He wants even more than that. And it's going to take more than that to remove this separation. So now go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1. John, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. Okay, that's verses 1 through 5. Skip down to verse 14, though, and track with me here. And the Word became flesh... And did what? And they need to talk really loud because there's like a massive train coming behind me here. Get it in quick, y'all. Yeah, to dwell among us, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the unique of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So Jesus came that we may behold the glory of His, the, of his Father, and this is another beautiful reason for the incarnation, because Jesus says in John 14, 9, that if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. He came to show us how God does life and what God's disposition towards man is, right? Towards broken, wounded, and fallen people. And this is super important because in our sinful and shame-filled flesh, we're tempted to feel that God looks at us in the same way that we look at us, that we're losers, right? That we aren't worth his time that were a waste of his time. And what Jesus is communicating through the incarnation is that I have come to reveal to you how the Father looks at you. And he looks at you, he doesn't see what's wrong. He sees what's missing. Right? And he, he pours himself into these vacancies, right? Into these holes and these gaps in our experience. That's what Jesus came to do for humanity and what the Father does. So the incarnation also encapsulates the entire plan of salvation. Jesus didn't just come to be born in a stable, to go from God on high to a little baby in a forgotten town. He's now become the brother of humanity, right? He's taken a step even closer to us. He came to live a life that you're acquainted with, right? A life of rejection, of disappointment, of abandonment and abuse. He was tempted to believe that he was forsaken by God and man. A life of being misunderstood, of being unappreciated, of loneliness, Right, just imagine when you've been in eternal fellowship with God on high, walking along the earth with no one who really understands you, who you really are, why you're here, what your purpose is, and that very few will appreciate it while you're here. Jesus knows a loneliness that you and I will never know. Right? And he went through this just for you and just for me. And he felt that this was a price worth paying. He wanted you to see that he's safe. 
He wanted you to see that he's trustworthy, and he wanted you to see that this is somebody that you can come boldly to. Amen? This is what Jesus came to declare and to give as an example. Paul alludes to this in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 11. Hebrews 2, and beginning in verse 11. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Amen? Amen? Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. Jesus is not ashamed to come in human flesh and suffer like you, be betrayed, abandoned, and lonely like you. He was more than happy to do so. In verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death Jesus might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You ever been overwhelmed by a fear of death? The fear of your own mortality? Fear for your own safety? Jesus came to speak into that space. And to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, Jesus does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's you and that's me. Therefore, in all things, Jesus not just, you know, might choose to be like his brethren. It says that he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, to make covering for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted... He's able to aid those who are being tempted. This is another beautiful truth about the incarnation, that Jesus had to be tempted like you. He had to be discouraged like you. He had to go through the heartbreak that you go through so that he could help you when you go through these circumstances. Guys, this is the beauty of the incarnation. He came to enter into your experience to show you, hey, I can help. You don't have to go through this experience alone. I remember hearing Dr. Timothy Keller phrase it this way, that Jesus was truly abandoned so that you will only feel abandoned. That Jesus had to go through an experience of truly feeling abandoned, truly like this idea that, you know, we have the comfort of Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit to go through the trials of life. Jesus had himself. Yeah, but he had disciples. Yeah, but where were they when he needed them the most? Jesus is acquainted with the loneliness that you and I will never have to experience. And he did this so that he could comfort you when you go through these challenging experiences in life. Hebrews 4 picks up even more on this. In Hebrews 4, beginning of verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, a suffering Messiah who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Paul understands that when we encounter the difficulties of this life, it can be easy to let go of our confession. Right, to give up hope in Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. This is not the time to let go of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then he tells us what to do. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Guys, Jesus came and lived and suffered and died just like you to make it clear that he's safe that you have someone you can come to when no one else is there, when no one else is working. You don't know what to do when you're overwhelmed by the things you're dealing with in this life. 
you can come boldly to Jesus. Amen? Maybe, you're, maybe you can't talk to your family about the stuff you're dealing with. Maybe you can't talk to your pastor. I hope you can. Maybe you can't talk to other people. You can come to Jesus. And you can come boldly today. And the incarnation shows us just how safe and reliable and faithful that he is when his people have a need. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23... This is a really quick reference. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. It's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, I believe. But in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Guys, we're not alone in this journey. You're not. And it reminds me in Daniel chapter 2 when the wise men tell King Nebuchadnezzar, Look, King, no one has these answers that you're asking for except for the gods whose dwelling is not with men. The Babylonian view of God is that God is nowhere to be found. You can't even access him. He's at a distance. He's inaccessible whose dwelling is not with men. But that's not the case here. Jesus became one of us. Right? He walked our experience. His name is God with us. And look at how he had to do this. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 5. Some of this is just incomprehensible. Um, Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The NIV is easier to understand in this. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That Jesus laid aside aspects of his godness to become a man, right? But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the incarnation even shows us the grandeur of God and his willingness to humble himself, to become one of us, to save us, to be willing to be nothing so that all of you could be everything. Right? So we went from face-to-face -face communion. He's still not done. We went from face-to-face -face communion to separation to God being the neighbor of his people to now Jesus becoming the brother of the human race, but he's still not done, right? He suffered and died for humanity and bore our sins. But look at what he does in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And beginning at verse 15. And I love this so much because the incarnation is teaching us that the Godhead is relentlessly and tenaciously pursuing his people, right? God is not passive in the great controversy. God is not passive in this conflict with evil. He is aggressively pursuing his people and doing whatever it takes to win our, our affections, to win our trust, to win our hearts. But in John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, the margin reference says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. And keep reading with me. Make sure you got your Bibles open for this. In verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Why? 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. Guys, God has promised here that we are not going to be left alone. The Holy Spirit not only walks alongside us, the word parakletos, the word helper that he uses here, is one who comes beside, but he doesn't stop there. He's willing to live in you, to bring the very comfort of Jesus into your experience when you're grieving and alone and there's no one there for you. Right? The Holy Spirit makes this, this beautiful transaction available to us. And he says in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So God has not just promised to be with us as our brother. He's promised to be in us as someone to comfort us in our trials, as we discussed last night, as someone to encourage us in our difficulties, as someone to guide us as we're in the valley of decision. And he's promised to live in us to empower us to live that life that he requires. And he's going through all of this so that he can be with us face to face yet again. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 picks up on this idea. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born through human means, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And we'll come back to that language in Romans 8 in a second. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Guys, we have been grafted into the family of God. We rebelled, we left. But God in his great mercy and sending Jesus has now allowed us to be co-heirs with Jesus. Right? Not just someone who hopes to be good enough at the end of the day and maybe he'll let me in the front door if I beg really hard. Literally, we are entitled to all of what Jesus is entitled to by becoming children of God. Romans 8 grabs more of this. Romans chapter 8 Beginning of verse 3. Romans chapter 8 and beginning of verse 3. For what the law... Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 1. There is therefore how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Right? Sin and death are so overbearing in our experience that he equates them to a law were it not for the grace of God. Right? And the law of the sin of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus makes us free from that law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, save us, and that it was weak through the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law on its own. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh through the incarnation. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. And here's why in verse 4. So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus didn't just come to suffer and die for humanity. This is a tremendous blessing for us. He also lived a righteous life that the Holy Spirit makes a reality in your life. The incarnation also gives us hope of overcoming sin in this broken world, right? In this sin-filled world. Skip down to verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption again by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are current tense children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And I love this because he uses the language of adoption here. 
And adoption can be a very painful and beautiful circumstance for people because what's implied is that I wasn't wanted, right? What's implied is that I had no home. I had no place where I was welcome. But the beautiful message of the incarnation is, no, 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 there is a place for you, right? You're welcome here. You were desired. You are loved. You are accepted. The very thing that we're running to everything but God to receive, acceptance, affection, loyalty, love, they're already yours. We're selling our souls to receive something that literally is already ours in Jesus. You're already adopted by the grace of God. Accept that, right? Accept that you are accepted. So the incarnation was not just about Jesus coming and living a righteous life. It was also about him setting us up to succeed in living his righteous life. He said in John chapter 5 and verse 30 that he did nothing of himself. And in John 14, 10, that it was the Father that worked through him. And then he has the audacity to say in John 14, 12, that we will do even greater things than he did. So through the incarnation, we are offered reconciliation with God. And through the incarnation, we're offered power from God to be a child of God. We're told this in John chapter 1 and verse 12, that as many as received him, to them he gave power to become children of God. And as we just saw here in Romans 8, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he teaches us how to live as a child of God, right? And the Spirit empowers us to walk in that successfully. This is such good news for us, guys. There is so much more wrapped up in that babe that was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And C.S. Lewis says this in the book, Mere Christianity. He says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The incarnation is the answer to the sin problem in every aspect. It was God's amazing act of letting us feel understood and safe, that, he, that we would believe that he is indeed trustworthy and that I can give him my all. And if he would go through all of that for me, then the least that I can do is give all for him, whatever it costs. If he will be that faithful to me, in giving up his son to die for me, the least I can do is go all in. And guys, 2020 was a challenging year for many of us, right? We faced stuff we didn't even know existed inside of us, right? We faced challenges that we thought were many years in the future. Some of us came to a painful reckoning that I thought I had more time, right? And it's been a challenging and difficult circumstance. And I just want to speak into that space here for a moment that... You know, some of us maybe realized who we really were when heavy, real trials came and some ugly stuff came out, right? We're going to talk about that this afternoon. If 2020 won, dot, 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 right? If 2020 won and you weren't who you thought you should be, then this afternoon at 4 o'clock, tune in because I want to speak into that space. I don't have time to do that right now. But through this time, God is teaching his people how to grow their faith, how to trust him, reminding him of how much we need him to get through this life. It's unfortunate that it takes trials to remind us that we need God in our lives, that I can't handle the stuff that's going on in my life, that I don't have what it takes. It's humiliating, isn't it? And some of us having to face that humiliation nearly broke us. But God works through these circumstances even, as we talked about that last night, in finding purpose and pain. And I believe that he's preparing us for what's to come. Right? I, I very much believe that what's going on right now is that first siege of Jerusalem, right, in AD 70. That God is doing a process here of preparing his people for what's to come. And this time is not wasted, guys. 
It's really easy to think it was a wasted year. Horrible things happened. I lost my job. I was scared about my professional career. I was scared about whatever, right? Maybe you had relational ambitions. Maybe you had family ambitions. Maybe you had, you know, a desire for healing and healing still hasn't come, right? Maybe you're looking for a change in living circumstances. Whatever your thing may be, you're praying for your wayward children to come back to the Lord. This only pushed them even further away. And you just wonder, God, what are you doing? I mean, really, what are you doing? We're suffering and where are you? Well, we're told this in the book, The Great Controversy. The season, this is The Great Controversy, page 621. This, and by the way, that book is more relevant now than ever. Amen? If you have not read that book, I implore you on behalf of Christ, read that thing. It will change your life. But we're told this, the season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. Anybody here going through a season of waiting right now? Waiting on the Lord can be crippling. But we're told that the season that we're about to go through will require a faith that can endure weariness and delay. God is teaching us how to handle waiting on Him when the tree is green. So that when the tree is not green, we know how to handle that circumstance. Right? A faith that will not faint though severely tried. The period of probation is granted to all to prepare for that time. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His victory is an evidence of the power of importunate prayer. I'm not taking no for an answer type of prayer. And uh, his victory is an evidence uh, of the power of importunate prayer. All who will lay hold of God's promises as he did and be as earnest and persevering as he was will succeed as he succeeded. Amen. God is challenging us through these circumstances to trust him, to take him at his word, to grab hold of the promises that he's made to us and do not let him go until he blesses you. That's what he's trying to cultivate during these seasons. Those who are unwilling to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long and earnestly for his blessing will not obtain it. There's no easy route there, guys. Right? If you give up, you won't see it. In fact, Ellen White was given this amazing vision. And she asked why there was so little faith amongst the people of God. And her attending angel told her, you let go of the hand of the Lord too soon. The reason why people are losing faith is because they're losing faith. Right? The reason why we're not seeing the breakthroughs that God has promised us is because we're letting go of the, hand, the Lord's hand too soon. Wrestling with God, how few know what that is. How few have ever had their souls drawn out after God with intensity of desire until every power is on the stretch. When waves of despair, which no language can express, sweep over the suppliant, how few cling with unyielding faith to the promises of God. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to, church, to just figure out how to claim his promises, how to trust him, how to be willing to wait patiently until he does what he says. Right? For some of us, all we have is the promise. And what we're waiting for isn't happening. And we feel stuck. But God is saying, I've got this. If I've carried you this far, I'm going to take care of these circumstances. But I tell you what, for some of us, reality doesn't look that way. Right? I've heard some of your stories. It's difficult. God may tell you to go forward, and, and you may not have what you were looking for when you go forward. Right? But we have to cling to what he said in those moments, and he will provide for us. We're told this in the Desire of Ages, page 123. Every promise in God's word is ours. By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God are we to live. When assailed by temptation, 
Look not to circumstances or to the weakness of self, but to the power of the word. Amen? All its strength is yours. Thy word says the psalmist, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. By the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the past of the destroyer. Here's the point, guys. The incarnation shows us that if Jesus is willing to go through all of that for me, the least I can do is hang in there and cling to his promises and seek to be transformed by his grace. This is not the time to, twi to quit, guys. It's not. If he was willing to walk through the hell that you and I go through on this earth and suffer and die and burst through that tomb on day three, then I truly believe that God can handle whatever 2020 threw at you. Right? If Jesus can burst through that tomb on day three, there is nothing that's impossible. Nothing. And we need to believe that and be reminded of that today in the midst of our grief and difficulties. So the incarnation gives us the most profound evidence that God is exactly who he claims to be. And that is faithful. Amen? The incarnation gives us evidence that God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He doesn't leave his people to suffer alone. You don't have to fight these battles by yourself. God is faithful and we have to cling to that. He's already proved it by how he's lived his life. So if I've proved that I'm good for it in sending my son, if he suffered and died and burst through that tomb on day three, if he's ever living to intercede for you in the heavenly sanctuary, if he's cleansing the heaven of any record of your sin and transforming your life to set you free from the power of sin in the here and now, then you better believe that what I told you I still intend to do. And I'm going to get you through this mess. And I'm going to come back and claim you as my own. Amen? That's the promise we have, guys. The incarnation gives us that testimony. So we go from face-to-face -face communion to separation to God becoming the neighbor of his people, to God becoming the brother of his people, to now God promising to live within us, sending the heavenly helper to comfort us, to strengthen us, to gain consolation in our trials and difficulties. But he's still not done. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Well, we're about done. Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says, also, there was no more sea. Now in John's context, this sea is the means of separating him from everything that matters most in his life. John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Everything he loves and cares about is separated from him. And this sea is that means. And I believe John, by faith, is speaking into that space. This separation is going to end. This isn't going to continue. This craziness I'm going through right now can't go on forever. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Very similar language to Exodus chapter 25 and other texts on the Solomonic temple. I think 1 Kings 6. And he will do what? He will dwell with them. God himself will be with them and be their God, and they shall be his people. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen? Guys, this is going to come to an end. 
There is hope in Jesus. The incarnation shows us that. And if he was faithful in his first coming, you better believe he's going to be faithful in his second coming. This craziness can't go on for much longer. But then he says in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things? Some of us struggle with this. Um... You promised to change my circumstances, and they aren't changing. You promised to change me, and I'm not changing. Can you really do that? I want to believe that, Jesus. I do, but I struggle to believe it. And he knew we would struggle, so he doesn't stop there. He says, behold, I make all things new. But then he says, write, John, write this down. For these words are true, and they are faithful. You can take it to the bank. God is coming to make all things new, guys. All things. All the chapters of pain in our experience will be gone. No more trials, no more pain, no more sickness, no more COVID, hallelujah, no more crying. The incarnation is the apex, but it's not the end of the story. He's sending the Spirit to prepare us to be ready when He comes again. And when He comes again, we will see Him face to face. We will dwell with him forever, and all the separation and loneliness and heartbreak, grief and sorrow will be gone. And we can finally have what our hearts have been longing for all along. Guys, what makes heaven heaven to me is not what it's going to look like. I could care less what they paved the streets with. I mean, we all know there's going to be mangoes and avocados on the tree of life. Amen? And they're going to be delicious. But that is not what makes heaven heaven to me. What makes heaven heaven to me is I can bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus. I never have to leave him. I never have to wonder if I'm good enough for him. I'm home. And I can stay. Never again to be separated. Never again to be hurt. Right? Some of us are so afraid to open up because we've been hurt. You don't have to worry about that anymore. You can trust fully and completely with Jesus. Some of us are ashamed of who we've been and we just wonder... Can his grace really cover that? Yes. Absolutely yes. And again, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to deal with that. But guys, there is hope in Jesus. The incarnation gives us this tremendous, beautiful picture of God to show us that he's willing to do whatever it takes to see you saved, healthy, whole, and happy. And he is committed in his heart of hearts that I'm coming to this earth and I will wipe those tears from your eyes myself. No more of this. There's hope in Jesus. This nonsense is going to end. And our King is coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. God, we need you now more than ever. There are people who are hurting right now. People that still have large questions that are unanswered and they don't know what to do. And I just pray that the incarnation would give us hope and consolation. That if you kept that promise, and you've promised to make all things new, then you're going to keep every other promise you've made to us. That you would rather die than not keep your promise. I was reading in Genesis 15 in my devotions this morning. I was just reminded that when you made a promise to Abraham, when you told him in chapter 15 and verse 1, that you were everything that he was looking for. And Abraham struggled to believe that. Abraham said, no, you're not. You promised me a kid, and I got no kids. You took him for a walk and said, look up, Abraham. You see these stars? 
That's how many descendants you're going to have. If you could count them, this is the number of descendants that I will give you. My promise to you hasn't changed. You're waiting, and it hurts, and I know that, Abraham, but my promise is still true. Then Abraham says, how will I know that you're going to do this? And God, you gave the most powerful testimony. He told him to cut those animals in half, and a torch passed between that sacrifice, making a declaration to Abraham and to me and to my friends who are sitting out here today, that so let that be done to me if I don't keep my promise to you. So let me be torn in half if I don't keep my promise to you. And God, the amazing thing is the incarnation tells us you did that, that the Godhead was torn asunder to save humanity. You came to suffer and die to show us that you're safe, that you can connect with us in all of our heartbreak and you've come to set us free. And so God, I pray that we would place our faith in you. I thank you that you've already shown your faith in us through the faith of Jesus. And I pray, oh God, that we would cling to that in the coming days and in this new year. For some of us, it's been too difficult to even hope for anything good this year. But God, I pray that you would speak into those wounds, that you would speak into that space, and that you would heal us. I pray that the God of hope, as we talked about last night, would fill us with all joy and peace in believing, and that we may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 15 and verse 13. Romans 5, 5 tells us that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. We cling to that today. May the incarnation bring hope into our lives, not just in this Christmas season that has just passed, but every day of 2021. Cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And save us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org